Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another serving of Business Soup Talk Radio. If it's in business, it's business soup. I'm your host, John Dibbavoise. When it comes to disasters, we all like to avoid them, but so often they hit us and we don't know they're coming. Dr. Gleb Sapersky, who is the CEO of Disaster Avoidance Experts, is going to be sharing his tips, tools, and techniques on how to plan and execute on the forthcoming disasters. But there's also one that's ongoing. How do you get through it? We're going to be talking about the COVID disaster, how the small business audience can use his advice and his book, Resilience, on how to adapt and plan as well as execute on the disaster. So pull up a chair, sit on down. Dr. Gleb is going to be serving up on this serving of business soup, some disaster avoidance. Dr. Gleb, welcome to this serving of business soup. Thank you so much for inviting me, John. It's a pleasure. My pleasure as well. You are an expert in disasters, in particular, avoiding them. You have a company that's known as Disaster Avoidance Experts. What does that mean to a small business owner? Am I planning for the Armageddon, the Three of Horsemen, or the Locust? What, do, what is it that you help plan for that makes you an expert? What my business does is helps business owners of all sorts, small business, medium business, and large business, avoid business disasters, which means any significant negative impact to your bottom line, which in small businesses, very many things are significant negative impacts to your bottom line. So when you look at disasters, where they come from, the root of disasters comes from our decisions. Really, that's where disasters come from, however much or however little we might want to admit it. And there are two types of disasters, decisions that lead to disaster. The first type of decision is where we make an active decision. So we make an active decision or a series of decisions that leads to disaster. You know, for a small business that might open, that's often in the growth stage. Let's say when you're going from one business, you're opening up a second branch and you make a bad decision, or you're hiring more employees and you're hiring a bad key employee because you know you don't have too much experience in hiring folks, so you make some bad decisions about who to hire. That can be one major decision or a series of decisions like a series of conflicts with your team members in the business that leads to conflicts. Or if it's a family-owned business, you know, having conflicts within the family is very frequent. I've seen that a lot. That's a bad problem. Well, let's talk about the family business. You hit on one that sometimes your worst decisions can be to hire grandma as the chief financial officer in the startup of the company. And that is a very common thing where you hire your friends and family into a startup because you have to fill out the form of incorporation and fill out those names. And oftentimes it doesn't work. So you're talking about how you can avoid the disaster where you've got to possibly fire grandma or any other member of the family. Is this like a, an employee manual? Do you sit down and say, all right, these are the disasters that you can plan on if you don't identify them in what format before I fire grandma? It's not an employee manual. An employee manual helps give guidance for how you employ people. My expertise is in process of how do you manage risks, have good business continuity, and see the kind of threats that many business owners just don't see because they don't have the experience with these sorts of threats. They have never experienced firing grandma, so they don't know what to avoid. They don't know the kind of risks that they're facing. I mean, let's say with COVID-19, how many people realized the kind of major, major, major global disruption that would come from COVID-19? 
you know, I realized that early onward, I published a number of editorials in March of this year saying that it's going to be much worse than we think and that everybody is going to rush back to reopen and that will cause a lot of businesses to lose a lot of money when they need to close down again because that's what's happening right now. They didn't realize what's going on. Well, how did you come to this assessment before it came out in public? How, how, where, do you get your, where do you get your numbers or your thought process to say, you know what's going to happen here? It's going to shut down, reopen, and then shut down again. Where did you get this information before you projected it out to, say, my audience or the audience previous to your appearance here on Business Soup? So my information comes from research in cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics, basically our brains, how brains work and how we're screwed up. You know, that's the problem with our brains. Our brains are screwed up in very many ways and way too many business owners rely on the fallacy of trusting their gut, following their intuition, going with their heart or being primal, as Tony Robbins tells us to do. Be primal, be savage. That's his, one of his models. <laughs> I mean, there's a reason about half of all small businesses fail within the first five years opening up and three quarters fail within the first 15 years because they trust such fallacious advice. They trust this horrible, bad advice to go with their gut, follow their heart, do what's comfortable for them, do what feels right. That is not how we should run our business. Wait, wait a minute. Trusting your gut, that's one of the things that we've been taught throughout our life is that trusting your gut is another way of saying that this is from experience. This is from instinct. This is information that's been handed down to me by my father and my grandfather and such on how to deal with situations like this. And that is the phrase trusting your gut. You're saying that I shouldn't trust my gut. Should your your thought process be inclusive of this gut formula or should I just circumvent what has been instinctive to me and my family over all these years? You should never simply trust your gut. So I'm going to be very straightforward and very clear. You should trust your head over your gut because our traditional thought patterns are a terrible fit for the modern business world. I mean, was your dad around when the smartphone was invented? <laughs> you know, let's how, how importantly has the smartphone been for modern businesses? Was your dad around when social media was invented? You know, was his advice really great for the modern world? And let's say for the, all the changes that we're living in. I mean, your grandfather might have lived in a very small, very localized economy where small networks of like-minded people were very important. We are living in a much more complex global society that's very much disrupted by events like COVID-19. I mean, who knew that a virus that originated in the middle of China, Wuhan, China, would get here and be so disruptive. Well, I saw it. Like I said, I wrote articles about it, public articles already way back when, because Wuhan, China, when you look at it actually, it's a major metropolis. You know, people never heard of it, they dismiss it. And it's actually a major metropolis. It has over 11 million people. It has over $22 billion of production. It's called the Chicago of China. It has something like 500 international flights per day. And with an average of 200 people, that's 10,000 flights. So it's going to get out there. But people don't think about it this way. They don't think about, hey, something that's in the middle of China is going to impact me because of their traditional thought patterns, because of their gut reactions, which are not a good fit for the modern world. Our gut reactions are actually stemming from our instincts, what you're talking about. These instincts come from the savanna environment. That's what they're evolved for. That's what okay. our intuitions are good for. So, for example, one of the most prominent ones, 
we lived in small tribes of 15 people to 150 people, and we had to very much rely on the fight or flight response. And that's our main response to threats. When, you know, in the Savannah yes. environment, that was great. You know, when you saw saber-toothed tiger, yeah, that was great to have the fight or flight response. It's better to jump at 100 shadows than to ignore a saber-toothed tiger. But in the modern business environment, if you're going to be jumping at the shadow of every email, you're going to get yourself way overstressed, way unproductive, and making bad decisions. So let's say you're getting some constructive critical feedback from a customer. Say, you know, email with a constructive critical feedback, right? What happens? Temptation is to have the flight response that's some people's personality, which means to ignore the email, delete it, never deal with it, whatever. Didn't never happen. That's easy and comfortable. It feels good to flight. Or the fight response, which means say write back and say, what are you talking about? Uh, you're wrong. I'm right. I, I'm great. You're a jerk. That is the fight response. Neither of those responses is the right response if you want to be successful as a small business owner. What you want to do is realize that the signal from your customer is likely a consequence of your systems and processes. And you want to look at what went wrong in your internal systems and processes underneath those, investigate that, and then write back saying, hey, I figured out what went wrong. This is the issue. Here's how I'm going to fix it. My apologies. And then you go ahead and fix it. That is a very complex response, not at all instinctive, not at all intuitive, but that's what you need to do if you want to survive and thrive. Well, I'm feeling like I'm getting indigestion from my gut telling me what to do. <laughs> you are. I'm sorry. <laughs> in your latest book that you just published this year, Resilience and Adapting for the New Abnormal of the COVID or the Coronavirus Pandemic, you're saying the new abnormal. What does that mean to the small business environment and how do we plan for that? We need to realize that the current situation that we're dealing with is going to be around for a very long time. Like I said, I already said back in March that what we'll be dealing with is repeating waves where we'll have loosening restrictions. As we saw a number of states, you know, starting in May, a number of states had loosening restrictions and then increase in cases. That's exactly what happens, exactly what I predicted because I said that they would reopen too early because of human nature and our thought patterns, and then- And their we'll gut have, reactions. And their gut reactions. That's what human nature is. Gut reactions, human nature, instincts. These are all the same things. These are all terms for what we feel comfortable with, what drives us, the emotions that we feel. Our emotions determine 80 to 90% of our behaviors and our decisions when we let them just go forward naturally and intuitively. And that's what happened across very many states starting in May. And they opened up too early. They had an increase in cases, and then they had to go shut back down again. And then they had decreasing cases. That's what happened. And a number of other states are on the track to have that happen, including right here where I live in Columbus, Ohio. Go Bucks! Right? We shut down <laughs> early. We didn't open up quite as early as you know Texas or Florida or Arizona. We opened up somewhat past then, but we also had a spike in cases and also had to shutting down right now more and more. So this is what's happening. It's going to keep happening. We'll have these waves of restrictions followed by decreasing cases loosenings followed by increasing cases. And what's happening is that business owners, when there's a loosening, when there's an opening up, they're all rushing to, an overwhelming amount of small business owners are rushing back to open up. And they're not realizing that they will come crashing into the restrictions. It's cost so much money, so much money to open back up and then yes. close back down, open back up and close back down. It's incredibly expensive 
hiring people, firing people, hiring people, or for you know, quote unquote, furloughing people, right? Yes. Those furloughs are mostly turning into permanent job losses. Let's be real. So that's costing business owners a lot of money that they don't have to be wasting. When they need to realize is that this is what will happen until we have a vaccine. These waves of restrictions and loosenings, especially with some of the political leadership pushing for top-down too early opening. This is a problem because they're not realizing the consequences of too early opening will have a lot of economic harm in the long run. This is a political year, right? This is the election year. This is a bad time to really go against health advice but and economic sense. A lot of economic experts are saying, don't open up too early. You will lose a lot of money when you do that. But so many people are doing it. So you got to realize that's the world we live in, and it's very dangerous for business owners to not anticipate the consequences. As President Trump famously said that he didn't want the cure to be worse than the ailment and the loss of an economy, where is that balancing act? What are you going to do for my audience to help them plan for this uh, COVID-19? So first of all, there are two questions there. One is about the broader economy. One is about the small business owner. I'll, I'll handle the broader economy first. Okay. So many economies out there, you know, ranging from Germany to South Korea. Let's say, oh, South Korea is a good example. COVID-19 was discovered on the same day in South Korea and the United States. By now, South Korea has 300 deaths. U.S. has over 160,000 deaths. South Korean economy has taken a very small hit from COVID-19. U.S. had a loss of GDP of 32% in the second quarter. This is a, a, an example of how the South Korean government institutions have handled COVID-19 much better. They have, instead of ignoring it for two months, which is what the U.S. did, what they did was institute a very quick contact tracing protocol where anyone who was found to have testing produced extensive amounts of tests and then trace the contacts of those who had COVID-19, and they were able to contain the outbreak. The U.S. did not do that. That's not what the U.S. did. The leadership ignored COVID-19, said, well, we need to keep the economy open. We don't need all this testing because testing, the more we test, the worse our numbers appear, and didn't do anything realistic on contact tracing, and this is where we are. The economy will not improve when people are afraid. There was a survey done of People who go to conferences of CEOs and other execs who go to conferences. And the conference business is one of the many areas where small businesses have lost a lot of money. Oh, yes. There's a lot of money lost in conferences, right? So when you look at conferences, it's not about simply the states shutting down, the government, you know, federal government saying no gatherings. If you look at conferences and people's willingness to go back to conference, that's what the survey was about. It showed that over 90% of People who typically go to conferences, executives from small and medium-sized businesses, will not go back to conferences until there's a vaccine. Over 90% of them will not go back to conferences. This is about the clients. This is about the customers. That's what's driving the situation. And closing down too small, closing down and closing it down in the wrong way in such a way as to not have sufficient tests and then contact tracing increases the size of the outbreaks which is happening across the United States right now. And the main thing is it causes people to be afraid. People who are afraid don't spend. Fear does, leads to economic loss. Fear leads to conservation. So they conserve money. They don't spend money. That's what destroys the economy. Fear. Fear destroys the economy, not public health actions. 
The right public health actions have saved the economy in South Korea, in Germany, and a number of other countries. Germany has much better financial outcomes and health outcomes than the United States. South Korea does as well. A number of other countries do as well because they focused on addressing health and therefore addressing fear. And now their constituents, their consumers are going out, spending money, reopening everything from tourism to conferences. That's great. And I really wish that that's what, exactly what was happening here in the U.S. with a good public health response. It's not. And that is the biggest problem. All right. So we, we have a disaster in hand at this moment. And that's right. And as you're saying that it has not been handled well, if they if the government, if the U.S. was to call you up and say, we have a disaster, what can you do to tell us how to to shorten the flatten the curve, whatever strategy or word usage they want to use? What would you tell them to do right now? What I would tell them to do right now is to instead of saying to states and localities, take care of your own testing, take care of your own contact tracing, central, I mean, this is ridiculous. Right now, 50 states are competing against each other to buy testing equipment. That is causing prices to be built up. I mean, imagine 50 small businesses, 50 franchises, if you have a business and it has 50 franchises and all of them are bidding against each other to get supplies for the business, to get their local supplies as opposed to them pooling their money together and then using the power of agglomeration of this money together to purchase the supplies that they need. That is what we're running into exactly here. Instead of 50 states pooling all of their money with the federal government saying, hey, we will be the one voice that deals with suppliers of tests, that deals with suppliers of personal protective equipment, that deals with suppliers of ventilators, the 50 states are competing against each other, which raises their price and really is a ridiculous strategy. What you need to do is centralize the response. This is what all the countries that have handled COVID-19 competently from Germany to South Korea to many, many others, Australia, New Zealand have done. It's a centralized response. They have with one voice, with one power. And of course, if you have a lot of money, you centralized response, you can bid down the price instead right. of being, being bid up. So you want to buy as tests, you want to buy all this personal protective equipment that you need. And what you want to do is have regulations that govern the use of testing and so on that's standardized across the country, not 50 different localities. All right. So, so far, you've said that the federal government, it sounds like, should step in as the one source to secure the testing equipment and then distribute that to each of the 50 states that require them or are asking for them in a cohesive effort so that everybody gets to test equally throughout the country, depending upon population and such. So you're saying that, first of all, centralize the control of the testing equipment, distribute it, then what? Part of that, you want to have the same regulations on testing across the country, as opposed to 50 different regulations across 50 different states, which makes it much more complex to test. So that's a part of that. Then you want to do the same thing for contact tracing. You want contact tracers who are going to be in a centralized fashion hired by the federal government, and that is going to give them much better training, much better coordination, and supply them according to the needs of each state. So states that have worse situation with COVID-19, have more contact tracing there, and so on. So have contact tracing, personal protective equipment, and shipments of various supplies, like remdesivir, done in that way by the federal government. 
And that will enable you to have a lot more control, especially with interstate travel and so on. The federal government can do a lot more of, of an effective job in having the testing and then contact tracing. If we don't have good testing, then good contact tracing will be in a pretty terrible place. So that's kind of part of the situation. The other thing that needs to be done is really focusing on the effective science of where you spread COVID-19. The federal government is not doing that. It's not really looking at the science. One of the things that the science suggests is that COVID-19 spreads most in indoor venues where people talk because it spreads through the air. So you want to, as much as possible, prevent people from going to these venues, indoor venues where people talk. So unfortunately for the owners of restaurants, this is a much better idea to have only outdoor dining. It's not as lucrative, but from the sake of saving the US economy, outdoor dining and the same thing in bars. So outdoor dining needs to be the future. Outdoor dining and, and the outdoor drinking needs to be the future. So I'm transitioning to what businesses need to do, kind of the kind of regulations and the kind of steps that businesses need to do. They want to be very much thinking about what the research shows. Unfortunately, there are a number of businesses who are not very serious about following masking and social distancing guidelines. And I've seen this with my own eyes, where you know you walk into a business and you know some of the employees are wearing masks and some of the employees are not wearing masks indoors. I walk right out of that business, I can guarantee that to you, because that's a business where people get COVID-19. It's breathing that had that caused it, it's talking especially that causes it. So you want to be very, very cautious. You want to have strict guidelines and strict policies on indoor people who are talking, breathing, coughing, preventing that. So making sure that everyone indoors wears masks, that's going to be incredibly important. So if you don't have that, that will really not enable us to open up the economy when we should. So if, if you are a small business owner, what you have to do is if you have an indoor business, you want to very much, again, if you're a restaurant, no indoor dining. If you're a bar, no indoor dining. If you're an entertainment venue where people talk with each other, no indoor activities of this sort because it's going to cause your business to be a super spreader event at some point or other. According to what you're saying here, who would have thought that drive-in theaters would come back into fashion? Yeah. Although I don't know of too many around. From my youth, we used to do that all the time, but now they're not so much. So who knew? I know, who knew, right, that this will be a new thing, but that's what's happening. So, and restaurants with outdoor patios are definitely going to win out. So restaurants that currently don't have outdoor patios I strongly encourage small business owners to invest serious money into outdoor patios, bars into outdoor patios, because that's the way that you're going to make money. And if you don't have that capacity for bars and restaurants and various venues that really require people to not have their masks, I would very strongly encourage you to get out of that business. And this is something I tell my clients who I do have some clients in the restaurant industry. This is not a good business to be in if you don't have a realistic outdoor patio opportunity and if you don't have realistic, you know, carry out opportunity. Well, that's that that that's kind of harsh. You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a direct person. You know, people don't hire me to lie to them. You know, they don't hire me to smooth things over and, you know, get, hand them rose-colored glasses. All right. So you're in the business of, as your book talks about and your business, talking about avoiding disasters like this. 
How do you come up with the disasters that are perhaps in the future? Do you look at history and say, well, this will come back? You must have some pretty deep conversations at the dinner table. (laughs) Thank you. I appreciate that. What I do is I look at specific patterns of human thinking that cause us to make bad decisions. And that, so that's the cognitive neuroscience and behavioral economics. Cognitive neuroscience is the study of how our brain works, the structure of our brain, and how we behave and make decisions as a result. And behavioral economics is, of course, how we behave in economic situations in particular. So for example, with COVID-19, one of the biggest, biggest dangerous judgment errors, and that's called cognitive biases. So folks heard the term cognitive biases, this is what it's about. One of the biggest cognitive biases here is called the normalcy bias. The normalcy bias refers to the fact that when we think about ourselves, our business organizations, we tend to judge the future by the past. And that was great in the Savannah environment because the only changes in the Savannah environment was going to be changes of the season, right? Winter, spring, summer, fall. Right. That's what it was about. Our modern world, that doesn't work. Now, think about yourself five years in the future. You probably think of yourself as a slightly older, wiser version of yourself, maybe hopefully slightly richer. But if you think back to yourself five years ago, you'll probably realize that you are probably a very different person in many ways than you are right now. But we don't think that in five years we'll be just as different as we were five years ago. And that's a typical example of how we greatly underestimate the kind of transformation that happens in the modern world. You know, what happens with, let's say, smartphones, that really changed how we interact with the world. Social media. What about the fiscal crisis of 2008, 2009? Major disruptor, major change. People greatly underestimated it who are living through it. Same thing for COVID-19. This is a major global disruptor. Life will never be the same after COVID-19. We'll never go back to January 2020. And this is a harsh statement. And it's harsh for me to realize it. You know, it's painful information for me to realize, go through, understand myself and share. But this is just the reality of the situation. The sooner we accept it, the better off we will be. Because what's happening right now is so many people want to get back to normal. They're falling into normalcy bias right and left. They're rushing to reopen. They're rushing to go back to normal. And they're not realizing that they need to adapt to this new abnormal, which is why I call the book Resilience, Adapt and Plan to the New Abnormal of the COVID-19 Coronavirus Pandemic. We need to not fall into normalcy bias. The most optimistic case for a vaccine being widely available and most people being vaccinated is in 2022. Did you know that? 2022, that's the most optimistic scenario by when we can have a widely available vaccine with much of the population vaccinated. And that's very optimistic. That's very unlikely to happen just because that all the ducks have to be lined up and everything has to go perfectly. More realistically, we're pushing into 23 or 24 by the time we have an effective vaccine that's, let's say, over 90% effective, widely available, and most people vaccinated. So this is not a short-term emergency. I know I've been been contacted by, by one oil and gas company that was wanted me to facilitate a strategic planning retreat, and I asked them about what are you, how are you treating COVID-19 as part of the strategic planning retreat, and they were told me that well we're just handling it as a day-to-day situation, and I very strongly pushed back and say no, this is a strategic issue. You need to incorporate this into your strategic plan because. This will be around at least until 2022, most likely 23, 24. While you might hope for the best, which is 2022, you need to plan for the worst. And that's kind of a basic principle of effective planning and risk management. So that's what I would tell small business owners. 
how does this pandemic differ from others in, in history, from the smallpox to the plague? Why do you have this long-term, it almost sounds like doom and gloom, from what you're saying here. How does this current one, how does that differ from the those of the past? Well, given that the plague swept away about one-third of Europe's population, <laughs> I would say it's not that different. <laughs> well, uh, let, let's be honest, the COVID-19 will not sweep away one-third of the population yet. The death rate has been estimated, uh, various estimates from 0.5 to 1%. That's the kind of the estimate. So one-third of the population will not be swept away. But aren't those that are that I've been reading about and, and hearing from other experts that that are in the highest category, the ones that have, I think, comorbidity? Yes. No, I'm, that's, that's what the, you know, the, those are the people who need to be careful. People who have, people younger than 50 who have various m- medical conditions right. and people or older than 50, which is itself a medical condition, unfortunately, with COVID-19. So the it's not a magical car, cutoff point, but basically the older you are, the more risks you face. I think that around 50 is where you start to face the range of 0.5 to 1%, and then you get into 60s, you go into 1% to 2%, and then the older you are, I think 80 and over, you get something like 15% of all people die. So that it so depends on your age. But basically, being over 50, you're getting into the 0.5 to 1%. But then again, the, those that are under 50, the, the young, healthy ones, they might get it, and then they bring it home to mom and dad or to grandpa. And that's right. Don't, don't kill grandma. Don't yeah. bring it to her. <laughs> Firing her you know, is hard enough. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, this is not something you, you want to do. You know, this is not a tragedy you want to see happen. We, and we've seen that. So, for example, the outbreak in Florida that has happened, the early outbreak has occurred mainly uh, after the reopening in May and June. It occurred mainly among people under 35, people who went to bars and indoor restaurants and they partied and they had a good time. And they got COVID-19, naturally. It's just the consequence of being indoors in large crowds, right. especially indoors, sometimes outdoors in large crowds, but mainly indoors in large crowds talking to each other. And then in June and July, you had the transition where the age went much higher because they brought home to grandma and grandpa and their parents. Sure. And those are the people who died. So you don't want to do that. This is very harmful. This is very dangerous. And this will cause a lot of fear. And so as a business owner, in addition to the health consequences, you got to think about the fear consequences. Fear will cause people, again, if you're a small business owner, you're a salesperson, right? That's kind of fundamental. I'm a small business owner. I own disaster avoidance experts, uh, as John mentioned, companies, consulting, training, coaching company in these areas, six people. So I am a small business owner. And I sure. know as the CEO of the company, I'm in sales. That's kind of, you know, one of my primary functions is to be in sales. So if you're a small business owner, you know that sales is your primary function. And sale, you, how can you sell effectively to someone who is in fear, unless you're selling them a solution to the fear, which most of you are not. You're not selling a solution to COVID-19 unless you're a cleaning company. So unless you're a cleaning company, which you're doing well and you don't need my advice, <laughs> you are not selling a solution to COVID-19. So you gotta address the fear. You gotta address the causes of that fear In your book, you talk about seizing the unexpected opportunities. Since we're talking about the doom and gloom of the COVID-19, what are you seeing as the unexpected opportunities out there, say, for the small business? Sure. So we'll talk a little bit about some various opportunities. Restaurants, the ones that get into virtual communication 
effectively, so social media and so on, rather than hoping for people who are passing by to go in and talking about various carryout orders, so ordering food, they would be much better off. And second, if they show a responsible attitude to the pandemic and talk about this, help their customers address fear and show how their food is going to be really hygienic and so on, the kind of steps they're taking to make sure that they address people's fears. That's what you want to do. You want to address people's fears. So though that's going to be really important and virtual communication, social media, that's where a lot of people are right now and they're spending their time. So you want to spend time with them. So if you want to survive based and carry out orders and people coming to eat on your patio. You don't want indoor dining. I'm right now, as a principal, not going to any restaurant that has indoor dining, even if they have patio dining, because they're clearly not operating in a safe manner. They're not operating in a manner that will be conducive to safety. So you want to do that. You want to model yourself as a responsible citizen, corporate citizen, and that will help ensure that you may be able to survive through the pandemic. So that's kind of a consideration. And that's a way you can seize market share from those restaurants that are not doing that. There are a number of restaurants that are irresponsibly behaving during this pandemic, not really caring about social distancing, masking, indoor dining issues. And they're not talking about how they're taking steps to address fears in the pandemic. So that's a big concern. You don't want to do that. You want to seize market share from those folks. All right. So if you can prove to your audience that your potential customers Overcoming the fear. Fear is one of the greatest motivators in human nature. And overcoming that fear is, in the, in the case of this part of the conversation, of recognizing and capitalizing on opportunity. So that if you can convince your audience through social media and your presentation that you are observing to the highest degree the health standards that have been put forth out there and that you are providing them with the best possible service and product in the healthiest environment, then you're going to be able to capitalize on that opportunity, or as you put it, seizing the unexpected opportunities in a fear-based economy right now. That's right. And that's kind of for restaurants. And there are a lot of other opportunities that are not provided by people like restaurants. So, for example, let's think about lawyers or any other professional service providers, accountants, let's say, or something like that. So one of the biggest challenges for these folks, and I'm a professional service provider, so I know what I'm talking about, is cultivating trust, cultivating trust with clients. Because we provide a professional service, but they can't see. You're essentially selling something that's invisible and you're providing something that's invisible. So they have to trust you that you have expertise. And that trust is built by face-to-face connections, conversations, collaboration, shaking hands, and so on. That's not really available right now. You can't really, you're not really going to shake hands. At most, you're going to bump elbows, right? And ideally, you're not going to see people in person. I mean, I'm not doing anything in person with any of my service providers, from accountants to lawyers and so on. So what you need to do, the opportunity that you can seize right now is get professional development in how to cultivate trust in virtual settings. A lot of lawyers don't know how to do so. A lot of accountants don't know how to do so. Consultants, they don't know how to do so. They don't. They don't realize that what they need to do is transition their business to virtual, as much virtual as possible, or let's say financial so managers. I mean, I have my financial manager wanting to come to my house. And I'm like, no, yeah. we'll, we'll do this over Zoom. You know, we can share your screen there and so on. And they don't even know these techniques. They don't know how to share their screen on Zoom. So this is something that you need to learn how to do. 
and invest into very much learning because this will, again, in the most optimistic scenario, this will be around until 2022, most likely 23, 24, even further. I mean, we still don't have an effective vaccine for the flu. We have a vaccine that's only 50% effective. And Anthony Fauci is saying that, you know, the new COVID-19 vaccine might be only 50% effective. You know, that's not great. So this might still continue and last for a very long time. So you gotta be prepared for that and you gotta change your professional development. You gotta change the way that you approach customers. How do you search for prospects in virtual settings? There's professional development in that. How do you do effective virtual presentations and have effective virtual meetings? There's professional development on that. And if you do this right now, you go to, you do this right now, you will not simply retain your existing clients, but you will be able to gain market share because you will have a lot of lawyers who aren't, unfortunately, not listening to this interview right now, not savvy enough to be listening to Business Soup, <laughs> and who are not realizing that this is a change they need to be making, accountants, financial managers, and so on. They're not realizing that this is something that they need to be doing. So they're not taking the steps that they need to, to adapt themselves to this new environment. Whereas if you go to a prospect and you say, who's currently working with somebody else and say, hey, you know, Mr. Prospects or Ms. Prospect, I've done steps A through F to be pandemic proof. And here are the things that I've done. My business is protected. I'm doing everything you know, virtually and so on. I've trained to do virtually. They will keep you in mind when their current service provider stumbles, which they inevitably will with the situation being what it is. So you want to take advantage of this and plan for the long term of preparing yourself. It will take some investment right now, some investment of your time and your money to yes. invest in professional development. And a lot of folks are instead spending that money and trying to reopen foolishly. Now, this is something you want to instead invest into transitioning to virtual as much as possible, learning that for yourself, getting your whole team invested into virtual, and then looking to seize market share in the future. Dr. Gleb Sapersky, he is the CEO of the Disaster Avoidance Experts, and perhaps the most famous statement that I've heard about coronavirus and reopening was from the mayor of Las Vegas, who said, we're going to open and let the chips fall where they may. <laughs> and I'm going, oh, that one's going to come back to haunt her. You'd put a different perspective on COVID and in your recent book, Resilience, on how to adapt and plan for the new abnormal of the COVID-19 coronavirus pandemic. That is a mouthful and in of itself of a book title. It'll help organizations as well as individuals navigate through the disruption that COVID-19 has brought upon us. And doctor, thank you so much for joining us on this serving of Business Soup. You're very welcome. This has been another serving of Business Soup, where business comes for business. I'm John Debevoise, inviting you to visit the website for more servings of what is best in business. This show has been produced by Market Domination, LLC. To discover how you can have your own show completely done for you and turn it into a real published book and become the authority in your marketplace, go to www.marketdominationllc.com slash podcast offer. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com. <laughs>